Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you in this way and in this space. It's my honor and privilege to get to open the scriptures for us and continuing in our series in 1 John. So whoever you are and wherever you are, thank you for joining us today. I wanna start with a confession and a short video clip. The confession is that I watch The Office quite a lot. Um, and my love for that show has only increased during COVID. Um, and it's to the point where I'm now occasionally flipping over to the YouTubes to enjoy blooper reels or trivia quizzes about the show and stuff like that. And so that's my confession. And on a very, very much related note, here is the video clip. Wikipedia is the best thing ever. Anyone in the world can write anything they want about any subject. So you know you are getting the best possible information. So, of course it's true. I read it on the internet. So uh, you know, unless you're Michael Scott, you are likely experiencing heightened levels of skepticism these days. And for good reason, we're in this era of so-called fake news. Many still dismiss global warming as a hoax. Social media and open source platforms, despite their advantages, can foster the notion that everyone is an expert. One definition of skepticism is a habitual resistance to accepting truth claims. Uh, I don't know to what degree you would say that describes how you're showing up in the world these days. I would say it sure fits me at times. My Twitter feed is often filled with people saying in one way or another, mm, I, I, don't, I don't think that's true. So if you fancy yourself a skeptic, you will appreciate how John opens our text this morning. 1 John 4, verse 1 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. Which is another way of saying, don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything you hear. That's the skeptic mantra. It's their fight song. But he isn't only calling his readers to skepticism. He's not just interested in telling them what not to put stock in. He's calling them to belief. So verse 1 continues. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So be skeptical, yes, but to what end? To find out what's true. Skepticism and belief need each other. Here's how Daniel Taylor put it. The two concepts can and often do go together because we live in a fallen world where knowledge of the truth is always partial and often distorted. Skepticism is a form of protection against believing too much. Belief or faith is a protection against believing too little. Skepticism keeps us from believing lies. Belief keeps us from failing to embrace truths. If I have no skepticism at all, I will be a sucker for anything. If I have no belief at all, I will be an even bigger sucker for skipping the possibility for meaning. Because meaning, in the most significant cases, requires believing things beyond what can be proven. That last bit is so important to remember. That meaning often invites, calls us, to trust in things beyond what we're able to prove. Skepticism is a gift, but so is belief. We need both. Let's hear the text as a whole now. I'm reading from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. 
because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. I just wanna say a few words about John's writing style. There's a poetic quality to it and he doesn't develop or doesn't tend to develop ideas in a linear or logical way. Rather, he uses a well-known technique of ancient rhetoric called amplification. And there's an image that'll come on the screen here to show you, to give you a visual of what that means. As the letter progresses, we see that John has lots to say about life and truth and especially love. He does so by cycling around these themes repeatedly, each time coming at it from a different angle, or slightly different emphasis. He uses a lot of hyperbole, as well as contrasting images, light and dark, love and hate, good and evil. So here, John is circling back to a theme he's already brought up with his readers, most of which are Jewish followers of Christ. He's saying there are scads of teachers among you who are claiming to be legit and who sometimes even look and sound like the real deal, but in actuality, they are not being truthful about who Jesus is. So it's a familiar theme, what's the variation? This time his particular emphasis, besides the clear warning, don't buy in and don't believe everything you hear, test it all, is to actually offer his readers a grid to help filter out the lies and accurately assess the truth. And a grid sounds helpful, right? I mean, if I'm a Jesus follower in the first century being bombarded on every side by new religious political movements, this one claiming to be the Messiah, that one claiming Jesus might be a good guy, but he isn't God. I would appreciate some kind of reliable filtration system. So before he gets to the what, John starts with the why. Why this urge to test what they're hearing to see whether it's from God. Last part of verse one, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The issue is volume. It's not just one or two people telling harmless half-truths. He's saying loads of people are telling you lots of lies. The decibel levels are getting out of hand and I don't want you to fall for it. So here's the grid, here's the epistemology. Here's how you spot what's what. Verses two and three again. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So notice that the grid focuses on what gets acknowledged, which is a big word that means claimed, asserted, confessed, and most likely in that context, publicly. And then John tackles the popular idea that Jesus had not in fact come in the flesh. And he directs both his own skepticism and that of his readers 
toward what became known as Gnosticism, a pseudo-religion centered on secret knowledge or insider information. The main claim of Gnostic thought is the notion that if you somehow gained this knowledge, you could escape entirely from the physical world and enter a realm of pure spirit. So in the mind of Gnostic devotees, whose motivation was to live above it all, it was unimaginable that the divine could have inhabited our gross, dirty planet with skin on. In order to actually be God, Jesus had to have been a purely spiritual being. For Gnostics, there's no way Jesus could have compromised that spiritual essence by having anything to do with a physical body that needed to eat and drink and urinate and defecate and sleep and, yes, eventually to die. And so when Gnostics talked about Jesus, it wasn't the real and fleshed incarnate Jesus we know from early witnesses to his life. It was someone who only seemed to be human like the rest of us. The heart of the Christian message by comparison, the good news from the beginning, which we have seen and heard and touched, is radically different. So to acknowledge then, to make it your confession that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is the critical test. Why? because the incarnation is not an optional add-on to the story. As John saw it, and as his gospel reveals, it was nothing less than the very center of the plot. The word became flesh and lived among us. Jesus did not say, I am secret knowledge. Jesus did not say, I am insider information. Jesus did not say, I am the idea. Jesus said, I'm the way. And then he said, follow me. I love what Oshita Moore wrote. She said, being a follower of Jesus requires us to look at the whole of his life, his birth, his childhood as much as we know of it, his ministry, how he spoke to people, where he ate, where he rested, where he performed miracles. Being a follower of Jesus means embracing a blessing found in the Mishnah, a Jewish commentary. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. So, while the blood of Jesus covers my sins, I want the dust from his sandals to cover my life. Every spirit that, acknowledge that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. That's the grid, says John. So why? is the incarnation such a big deal. The season of Advent is right around the corner. And again, we'll be singing carols that anticipate and celebrate the birth of Christ. Many of the best ones in my view are the ones that highlight this incarnation. Carols that remind us, this was no ordinary baby. What child is this? Who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, who angels greet with anthems sweet, while shepherds watch are keeping. Carols that remind us we aren't just celebrating the birth of some king or prophet, infant holy, infant lowly, for his bed, a cattle stall, oxen lowing, little knowing Christ the babe is Lord of all. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Word of the Father now in flesh appearing, O come, let us adore him. 
The world of Advent and Christmas is filled with the poetry of incarnation, sheep herders and fields and animals and barns, God as a tiny human, nursing and sleeping, pooping and peeing, don't figure as prominently in the songs, but y'all better believe they happened. <laughs> Through these songs and poems, we rehearse the mystery that in Christ, God became human, which doesn't just mean he took on a human body as if he were a passenger. It means he was joined to an actual full human nature. Every currency of being, body, mind, feelings, and time, as one of our opening prayers has put it. And our Western minds want to somehow prove this, don't we? But it can't be proven, and God isn't interested in offering proof. Nor are the biblical offers, or authors. In the end, it's a mystery. Either you believe it or you don't. Either you trust it or you don't. Either you build your life on it or you don't. One writer put it this way. Christianity is a confession, not an explanation. We will attempt to explain what we legitimately can, but we will always confess more than we can explain. I fully confess God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even though I cannot fully explain the Trinity. I fully confess the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even though I cannot fully explain what it means that the Son of God has inaugurated a world beyond the realm of death. I fully confess that Christ will come again, even though I think those end time prophecy charts are utterly ridiculous and wrong. <laughs> Room for mystery is necessary for orthodox theology. Mystery is good for theology, and mystery is good for the soul. Brian Zahn stands on the shoulders of orthodox theologians like Callistos Ware, who said, it is not the task of Christianity to provide easy answers to every question but to make us progressively aware of a mystery. God is not so much the object of our knowledge as the cause of our wonder. Oh, I just love that. So the incarnation is a big deal and it's mysterious indeed. It can't be proven, but it can be practiced. Christian faith is not primarily a belief system, but a way of being, which means our faith needs to be embodied. And what happens when it isn't? Well, one answer by uh, von Balthasar says, all the kitsch to be found in the Christian life and Christian art arises from a failure to take the incarnation seriously. That's where it all comes from, kitsch, as defined as mass-produced art and poor taste, often characterized by excessive sentimentality. So if we think of Christmas as God donning a human costume to play act as a person, we treat the incarnation as kitsch. If we think of Jesus being born just so he can grow up and die for our sins, we treat the incarnation as kitsch. If we think of Jesus as Superman flying around being God all over the place, we treat the incarnation as kitsch. And if we have a kitschy view of the incarnation, we'll have a kitschy, cartoonish, cheap, sentimental Christian life. On the other hand, if we can find ways to approach the mystery of the Incarnation as the greatest wonder of all, to grow in our understanding of why it matters. We will find the doorway to meaning beyond the provable. We'll become grounded, not in dead certainties, but in several living assurances. 
that God is on our side. God is not a distant deity, judging and condemning and hurling thunderbolts from heaven. God made God's self weak and vulnerable. God is infinitely above us, but came alongside us. The assurance that God understands us, as the writer of Hebrews put it, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. The assurance that God identifies completely with us so that we will be completely identified with God. The early church fathers put this strongly and strikingly. Irenaeus spoke of our Lord Jesus Christ who did through his transcendent love become what we are, that, we, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. Every part of us is under the lordship of Christ. It's another assurance. And another early church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, argued against the bishop Apollinaris, who taught that in Jesus, God had united himself to a human body alone. And Gregory said, no. He had assumed a human mind too. Because if he hadn't, then our minds would remain unredeemed. In a famous phrase, he explained, what is not assumed is not healed. The incarnation is a constant reminder of how God chooses to reveal God's self. C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle said, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. The incarnation reminds us that God is present in the small, the helpless, the seemingly insignificant. And we ought to learn to see God there. This is why the incarnation matters. And that, according to John, is how we recognize the true spirit of God as opposed to those who would deny an embodied Messiah. Last few verses once more. We're almost there. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So quickly, what, what is the spirit in the world like? The spirit of falsehood, John said it in verse 3. It's the Antichrist, the Christ-denying spirit, the spirit that doesn't take the incarnation seriously, the spirit of kitsch, the, the spirit that would have us think of the Christmas story as a sentimental quasi-deity wearing a human costume, telling us to be nice to each other. The spirit that imagines Jesus only in utilitarian transactional terms. As long as it makes my life better and easier, I'm in. The spirit that would keep us from seeing that the kingdom of Christ is built on co-suffering love, not violent force. All that, says John, that's not who you are. This is who you are. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome that spirit because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. It's good news. It's incredible news. You are from God. God is the source of your life and breath. God is the ground of your being. You have already won. It was Christ himself who said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the system that would deny 
an incarnate God. I have overcome patterns of thinking that keep you trapped in habits of denial and pain avoidance. I have overcome all of these things through an infinitely better story, a story that's a mystery, and it boils down to I in you and you in me. So friends, I invite you this morning to some spirit-empowered dekitchification, which is absolutely a word. Alternatively or positively, we could think of it as practicing incarnation. I want to leave us with a poetic litany by Brian Zond, again, as a loving call to action. And from here, I'll invite us to the Lord's table. And the poem, I love the title, is called Belong, and in brackets, Antidote for Gnosticism. So receive, breathe this in, live it out, walk it out. Let Christ inform all of life. Don't be a religious cliche. Be a real human being. Belong to the human race. Belong to the woods, belong to the city. Go for long walks. Learn to appreciate art. Take up the violin. Cultivate culinary skills. Read War and Peace. Laugh more than you do. Weep now and then. Listen to live jazz. Pray. Eat a peach. Do something ridiculous. Go dancing, stop judging, start loving. Plant a garden, climb a mountain. Memorize a long poem. Learn some astronomy. Become a beekeeper. Go back to college, take up a new hobby. Make some new friends. Read the Bible in a new translation. Get rid of bumper stickers. Learn a foreign language. Watch a foreign film, change your mind, drink only good coffee, trust the sommelier, talk to your neighbor, not about religion, go to church, go to the circus, don't confuse them, <laughs> be human, belong.